Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Exodus. If you're new to the things of the Bible, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, probably about 80 to 100 pages in. Exodus chapter 1, we'll read just the first eight verses. Hear now the word of the living God. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, O Lord, we ask your blessing on the preaching of the word. We pray that you would help us. We pray that we might clearly understand the word before us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever seen a painting or read a story or listened to a song of music that caused you to think about your own story? Perhaps you've been at an art museum and you've gazed at a picture and you find yourself fixed upon that picture because there you see symbols and things that resemble part of your own life. Maybe you've listened to a song, a favorite songwriter or band, and you begin to listen to those words and that's not your story, but it kind of is because you think, I'm reminded of my own life here. One of the things that often grips me is artwork where there are mountains, snowy fields, and barns. Find them in antique shops all over the place. And that's not my story. I don't even own a barn, boys and girls. But I find in that picture something that reminds me of part of my own story. Well, Exodus, if you're a Christian, is a picture of your own story. Exodus is like a painting or a song for us where there are characters and things that happen and themes and God's intervention, which while not exactly your story, is your story. If you've never read through the book of Exodus, let me just give you a quick summary. God's old covenant people, the Hebrews, find themselves in slavery in Egypt. They can't get out. But God delivers them. He baptizes them through the Red Sea, if you will. They are given a mediator, someone to speak on God's behalf and to represent them. Someone that, as it were, in their covenant, they go to God through. They're given a law. God's presence is among them, and He abides with them. This is your story. 
No, most of us in this room, if not all of us, we're not Hebrews, we're not Jewish, but if you're a Christian, you've been brought out of slavery to sin. You've been brought through the waters of baptism. You've been given the ultimate mediator, Jesus Christ, who stands between you and God, making it so that your sinful life is forgiven. And that the requirement of God's righteousness is on you because Jesus kept God's law in your place. You've been given God's law, placed on your heart, the new covenant. And God abides with you through Christ as his people. You see, Exodus is like a painting or a song or a picture that reminds you of your own story. The book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, is a true story. As we walk through this, boys and girls, it's a true story. There really was a man named Moses. There really were Hebrew people brought through the Red Sea. There really were people who were given a land in Canaan. The word exodus comes from an an ancient Greek word, which means to exit. That's why we call it exodus. They make exit out of Egypt. Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 12, verse 26, that the author of the book of Exodus is Moses. And interestingly enough, the book opens with a journey to Egypt, and the book ends with people out of Egypt in the land that God had promised before Exodus even began. Now last week we saw Joseph saying, God is going to deliver you hundreds of years from now out of Egypt. And when he does, I want you to take my bones with you. I'm dying in the hope of the promise of God. So we open with Jacob's and Joseph's family. We just read those verses. We see the names of all those who with Jacob went down to Egypt. Joseph was already there. There was a famine. There was no food. Jacob's small tribe goes down. And they experience prosperity and blessing. But in verse 8, we read these words. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I want us this morning, brothers and sisters, to consider three aspects, really, of our story from chapter 1 of Exodus. The first is this, the Lord blesses his people. The Lord blesses his people. Look at verse 7. Before we read anything of the new king, the new Pharaoh, the bad guy of the story, in verse 7 we're told this, the children of Israel, Jacob's family, The children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now you might be thinking at first glance, I get it. If you're good, if you live a good life, if you have enough faith, God will bless you with money, with health, with stuff. But that's not the kind of blessing that the Bible speaks of. Some people who love God and love Jesus are rich, and some are poor. Some are healthy, and some are sick. The blessing that is spoken of here goes back to the promise, the very first few pages of the Bible. The blessing is God's people seeing God's promises coming true. 
You remember Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God takes him out of the desert and says, Abraham, it's in you and your seed, your family, that all the nations of the earth should be blessed. The theme of blessing is all over the Old Testament. You remember that famous passage in Numbers chapter 6. We read it here often at the end of our services. With hands lifted high, we hear the word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face to shine upon you. Knowing God and seeing His promises is the blessing. You can read of this in Psalm 128.5 or Psalm 133.3 or Psalm 134.3. The blessing that we read of here in Exodus 1.7 is the exact thing that God said would happen to Abraham. You are going to grow to a mighty nation. In fact, I'm going to give you a sign. Your males will be circumcised and every one of your males will know it's from our family that the blessing of the world will come. So here, in a foreign land, what happens? They grow. There is seed. Abraham's family is blessed. But you see, this blessing that we read of in Exodus chapter 1 is a picture, is it not, of the blessing that Christians experience. Because later on in the New Testament, Jesus would come. And he would be the son of Abraham, if you will. And he was the one that was promised at the very beginning. God told Abraham, the blessing is going to come through your family. And he came. A Hebrew carpenter. Truly God and truly man. Jesus Christ. He lives a perfect life. He dies an atoning death. Listen, this is what happened when Jesus died. God, the triune God, punished Christ for all the sins of all the people who would ever trust in him. All the lies, all the deceit, all the pride, the murder, the adultery, the stealing. God just poured it out on Christ 2,000 years ago. So that, as the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will have his or her sins forgiven, completely wiped out. It's as if God, the one who must judge sin, can now receive us in love because Christ stands in the middle as our mediator, taking all the blame for all of our sins. This is what God had in mind when he told Abraham thousands of years before Christ was born, I'm going to bless the world through your family. It's not about money. It's not about land. It's not about stuff. It's about sins being forgiven and us knowing the God who made us. Do you know Christ? That's the blessing that was promised throughout the Old Testament. That God would know a people from, yes, the Jews, but also the Gentiles. There's no person, male, female, no person with any kind of background, any kind of ethnic group that cannot be saved now. Christ is the mediator. He is the blessing that was promised. Now, interestingly enough, In the Old Testament, during the blessings of the priests that God would set apart later on in the book of Exodus, they would often remind people that the blessing that is in view is God's name, God's face shining upon them. So turn to the very last page of the whole Bible. You want to know how to read the Bible? 
There's a story that runs all the way through. God creates. We sin. God promises to send Jesus. He does his perfect work. Those who trust him will live forever with him forgiven of sins. That's the story of the Bible. Friend, that's the story of the world. Look at the last page of the Bible. Revelation 22. Abraham's people will see this. And the tribes of the world will see this. Every skin color, every background, every ethnic group. Revelation 22 the very last page of the Bible. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face. Remember? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face to what? Shine on you. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. A couple verses later at verse 14 of Revelation 22. Blessed. Blessed are those who do His commandments that they may have the right to the city of life and may enter through the gates into the city. God's people have a changed heart by His Spirit and they keep His commandments. But they're only there because Christ, the promised blessing, is theirs by faith. So here at the beginning of the story of Exodus, we see first thing in this picture, the first few verses, God makes good on his promise. I said I would bless Abraham's people, and I have, and I will. And they become mighty and abundant. There's seed everywhere. The Lord blesses his people. Has he not done that for us? Has he not given us the blessing of Christ, of knowing the forgiveness of sins? of knowing right relationship with God, of knowing hope in the face of death, of knowing His grace and mercy in the midst of the most difficult struggles of life? Has He not blessed us? Yes, even with the goodness of each day. Family, friends, and even those of us who've suffered the most in this room have life and breadth and food each day. The Lord blesses His people. But secondly, we see this. The Lord protects His people. Look at verse 8. This isn't a movie, and it's been made into several movies. But if this were a movie, this is where the music would change. Because look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So the people of God are experiencing blessing. There's a lot of hope at the end of Genesis. Joseph says, there's so much hope, I want you to take my bones with you when you go. And now there's a new king who knows not the name Joseph. And all of the arrangements that have been made. You see, Joseph, a Hebrew, rose to the very high top of the Egyptian government. That's how the Lord protected his people then. But now there's a new king who did not know Joseph. 
Some scholars speculate that this was due to one ruler expelling a previous ruler or pharaoh and his dynasty. And we actually have a record of that happening historically about the same time that Moses and his people would have been in this land. So perhaps that's the clear answer for how one king didn't know the former king's helpers. We're not exactly told, but we know now that the scene changes. The picture changes. You see, the Lord has blessed his people, but as we'll see, even through this chapter, the Lord protects his people. Notice what happens next. Verse 9, and he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. Boys and girls, that means the king had people that he kind of set over the Hebrews. He made them slaves. and They they had slave masters who were harsh with them. Look at the next few verses. They built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, But the more they afflicted them, the more they grew and multiplied. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, harshness, difficulty. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shiphrah, The name of the other was Puah. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Blessing seems to come to a very tragic possibility. Within a few years, you kill all of the Hebrew boys, you'll thus weaken and stamp out a people. Now, I want you to understand something. This is Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, saying to these Hebrew women who are midwives, people who help to deliver babies, I want you to kill all the boys and let the girls live. You need to remember that we've already seen something about seed being at war, haven't we? You may be thinking, oh, this is evil. But we've seen this before, and we'll see it again in the Bible. Go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. God speaks a word of gospel, as it were, of gospel promise to Adam and Eve, but he speaks first to Satan. And he says, Satan... There's going to come from this woman a skull-crushing seed. He is going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel. He's going to crush your head. This, of course, was the first mention of the coming Christ that we have in the Bible. But what does God say? There is going to be enmity between her seed and your seed. And if you follow this theme from Genesis 3.15 all the way through the Bible, what do we keep seeing Satan try to do? 
to kill, to stamp out the seed of this people. In fact, if you know your whole Bible, we're going to see this again. For when the true seed, Christ, is born, what is the command that is given? Kill all the boys. You see, Satan repeatedly and regularly attempts throughout the history of the Bible, and even in some ways today, to kill the seed of the woman. But he will not prevail. But it seems like, well, this is it. In one generation, the promises are gone. (laughs) There's no men. There's no one that will be circumcised. Think about that. Who carries the seed promise? The men in the Old Covenant. Of course, the women carry it in their minds. But the men are marked in their flesh with God's promise. What does Pharaoh say? Kill them all. Well, the text continues. Verse 17. But, but the midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Let me just insert here. Humanly speaking, these midwives, because they feared the Lord, not only, as we'll see in a moment, were rewarded by God for their faith, but it is essentially through their faith and fear in the living God that the promise continues. Humanly speaking. Look at the next verse. So the king, verse 18, of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? Now this would be a scary moment if you're a slave and the ruler of those who are enslaving you asks you this question. Why haven't you done what I've asked you, commanded you to do? Verse 19, And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. God is protecting his people in the worst of circumstances. And brothers and sisters, this is our story. Our family, Christ's church, for 2,000 years has been protected, sometimes in moments of great peace and victory and joy, and sometimes in even the darkest circumstances. God's promise will not be stamped out. Satan's head will be crushed, and Christ will receive all the glory and honor due his name when he stands in the presence of the triune God there with all of the millions and billions of people who have trusted in him and for whom he died. Now, we have an interesting dilemma, it seems, here, don't we? One way he protects his people and the ongoing promise that he's given is by preserving faith among us. That's what he does here. Now, uh, some scholars would likely argue that it, it wasn't necessarily just these two women that were trying to be the midwives for all of the Hebrews. Remember, they have grown mightily. But perhaps these are chief midwives 
or just two that we're told of. But the midwives have faith in God, and they fear the Lord more than they fear man. Think about the things that we do in this life because we fear man more than we fear God. They fear God. But a question may come, but did they lie? Notice the result in verse 20. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives. One of the questions in just about any commentary or any scholarly work that you pick up, any devotional, pastoral work on this, is probably going to engage the question of what are we to make? It's clear that God approves of their fearing him. But what are we to make of the possibility that they told a lie? Let me just give you a couple samples. Augustine, our brother from the early 400s, writes these words. Many lies indeed seem to be for someone's safety or advantage, spoken not in malice but in kindness. Such was that of those midwives in Exodus who gave a false report to Pharaoh to the end that the infants of the children of Israel might not be slain. But even these are praised not for the fact, but for the disposition shown. As for it being written that God dealt well with the Hebrew midwives and with Rahab, the harlot of Jericho, he did not deal well with them because they lied, but because they were merciful to the men of God. So it was not their deception that was rewarded, but their benevolence. The benignity of their intention, not the iniquity of their invention. Now that's one pretty trusted scholar. Augustine saying, yes, there likely was a lie, but the focus in the text is not God loves it when we lie, but the disposition of their hearts. However, others, perhaps a couple of Puritans, about a thousand years after Augustine, say things like this. Matthew Poole, this might be no lie, as many suppose, but a truth concerning many of them, and they do not affirm it to be so with all. And so it might be, either because their daily and excessive labors join with the fears of the execution of the king's commands, whereof they seem to have gotten notice, did hasten their birth, as the same causes do commonly in other women, or because they, understanding their danger, would not send for the midwives, but committed themselves to God's providence and the care of some of their neighbors present with them. So here was nothing but truth, though they did not speak the whole truth, which they were not obliged to do. Matthew Henry, for instance, takes a very similar approach to Matthew Poole. This approach is saying, well, we're not necessarily told that the content of what they told Pharaoh was actually a lie. Maybe some women were more, as the text says, lively in giving birth than other women. Of course, this is a question that we bring to the text. And good and godly scholars will seek to try to understand that with a variety of backgrounds. What I think we can see is clearly in verse 20, God deals well with them because they feared him. That's the theme. Don't get lost in the content of how back then Egyptian women and Hebrew women gave birth and whether it was a lie or not as your primary focus. Focus on the fact that Using the faith and fear of these women, God's promise continues and his blessing continues. The Lord protects his people. 
And brothers and sisters, one way that he protects us is preserving and persevering faith among us. One of the ways that God continues his work of the gospel reaching the nations is that we teach our children the things of the faith and that by his grace, many of them are converted. And by his grace, and hopefully his grace in this case, they're stronger Christians than we are. And the next generation carries that promise along. He preserves faith. Notice in verse 21, the blessings of the midwives was part of the entailment of the larger promise. How did God bless them? There's a lot of talk in our day about the blessing of God. Well, how did God bless them? And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. They were blessed with families, with a house, as it were. Not so much the building, but the, but the family. And isn't this a part of the Abrahamic covenant? Abraham and you and your house and your seed and your family shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So these Hebrew midwives got to see from their own flesh, as it were, the continuing work of God. That was how God blessed them for their faith. God's chief blessings to us, brothers and sisters, are allowing us to see the fulfillment of his promises the goodness of his promises, that his word can be trusted. There's a pattern of this in the Old Testament. God providing a house, if you were, for the old covenant people. Genesis 30, Deuteronomy 25, 9, 1 Samuel 2, 35, 1 Kings 2, 24. A repeated pattern of an individual or a group of individuals receiving the blessing, as it were, of a household. The Lord blesses his people and the Lord protects his people. But there's still another problem in the text, it seems, for God's people. Look at verse 22. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Now, boys and girls, this is an earthly king, King Pharaoh, being afraid of the Hebrews, and he wants to kill all the boys. He's afraid of the fact that the Hebrews have gotten so big. He doesn't want to lose his power. He doesn't want to lose his kingdom. But as we read our Bibles from the beginning to end, we need to understand that this isn't just Pharaoh trying to kill a particular group of boys. This is also Satan influencing Pharaoh behind the scenes, whispering in his ear, if you will, kill the seed. Kill the seed. Because that's Really, in one sense, the promise of the whole Bible. Jesus will come. So he says in verse 22, cast them into the river. And of course, this sets the stage for Moses' birth to be like someone else's birth. The ultimate mediator, Jesus. We've mentioned this before, but both Moses and Jesus are born under threat of death. This is another way that this picture on the wall or this song that we're listening to called Exodus is a picture for us of our story. Our mediator was born with the command, wipe out the boys, kill the seed. 
And if you have eyes to see it, I would encourage you to consider in Revelation chapter 12 that Satan wants to do the same thing to all of Christ's people. Because there in that precious book of Scripture, we see a picture of Satan, this ancient serpent, if you will, wanting to kill all the seed. Brothers and sisters, Satan absolutely loves it. He absolutely loves it. And he can wreak havoc that he thinks, as it were, is wiping out the seed, convincing us not to evangelize, convincing us not to disciple our children, convincing us not to know the truths of his word. He wants to wipe out the seed, but he will fail. The Lord will bring judgment, as we will see on Pharaoh. One Christian hymn writer and writer of commentaries in the 300s, his name was Ephraim. Ephraim the Syrian. This is what he wrote in one of his commentaries on Exodus. Just as Pharaoh was drowned in those very waters in which he had drowned the infants, so too David removed Goliath's head with the very sword with which he had destroyed many. Our Lord condemned Satan by the word of his mouth when the latter was tempting him. Pharaoh was drowned by the waters in which he had drowned others. It often works that way in the Scriptures. But this picture of Exodus is a picture that points us to our story. The Lord blesses us, Christ's people. He protects us, preserves our faith, even in the midst of very difficult challenges. But thirdly and finally, he points his people to Christ. You see, each element of Exodus in a variety of ways is going to remind us. It's going to echo in our ears. It's going to be like that picture on the wall. This picture reminds me of my story. God freed me from my slavery, not in Egypt, but from sin. God brought me through the waters of baptism. God has given me a mediator. God has given me His law. God has given me His presence. And very soon, God will give me His land. Emmanuel's land. The glory of the new heaven and the new earth. So stare at the pages of this picture, beloved, as we walk through them together this year. True story. But it's a painting which reminds us of our story, those in Christ. I just want to remind you as we close this third point, the Lord points His people to Christ. Exodus is a story which is a picture of what God will do to Jews and Gentiles one day who are in Christ. But the New Testament actually tells us that even this picture is connected to Christ in some way. Let me just give you one example. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We read these words. This is Paul, the apostle, writing several decades after Jesus came and lived and died and was raised and ascended to glory 
Paul writes these words, 1 Corinthians 10, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. In our journey through Judges, even last week, our brother Blake referred to this in a different context. The story of Exodus isn't just a picture. It's part of the ongoing movement of Christ's work among the nations. Matthew Henry helps us to see this picture in this way. He says this, After the death of Christ, our Joseph, his gospel Israel began most remarkably to increase. And his death had an influence upon it. It was like the sowing of a corn of wheat, which, if it die, bringeth forth much fruit. End quote. Joseph, Matthew Henry the Puritan says, is a type of Christ. And Joseph's death is something that brings about fruit. Christ's death brings forth the ultimate fruit. So we'll walk through this book, and by His grace, we'll see that this is a picture of our story. Brought out of slavery through the water, given a mediator in a law and a land. We began this morning by saying that Exodus is a picture of our story of salvation. Don't just take my word for it. Listen to how Augustine summarizes Exodus 1,600 years ago. We have been led out of Egypt where we were serving the devil as a pharaoh, where we were doing works of clay amid earthly desires, and we were laboring much in them. For Christ cried out to us as if we were making bricks. Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened. Let out of here. We were led over through baptism as through the Red Sea. Red for this reason, because consecrated by the blood of Christ. When all our enemies who were assailing us were dead, that is, when our sins had been wiped out. I think he's absolutely right. We were making bricks here in this world, serving a taskmaster who hated our souls and wanted us to stay enslaved in our sins. But Christ, the true and better Moses, has come. And He says to all who are laboring under the weight of their own sins, chains that they have forged in their own life, come. Come to Me. I will lead you up out of slavery to sin and into the promised land of My grace. Do you know Christ, friend? Yeah, do you know the story of Moses and Exodus? But do you know what it ultimately points to? Do you know Christ? He is the one who saves his people from the true Egypt of sin and death. Let's pray. Living God, we pray that you would help us. As we stare at this beautiful picture of Holy Scripture, a true picture of your work long ago, but a picture which gives us themes of our own story. 
We pray that you might remind us of your rich grace. Help us, Lord, we pray. Help anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, who may be relying on their own good works, their own record, to kind of have a a place to stand before you. Help them to see that Christ must free them from their slavery and that they are enslaved to sin. But that Christ will free them and bring them up and give them life everlasting. We pray that as we look now to the Lord's Supper, that that picture of our story would be used to nourish our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.